Welcome to episode two of the Rising Edge DNO podcast, available on all podcast apps. So do make sure you are subscribed to get every episode downloaded straight to your device. Owen, let's dive straight in as we are addressing a pretty big and emerging risk for corporates and their directors and officers, and that is ESG, standing for Environmental, Society and Governance. As we release this on 7th of November, COP26 is well underway, bringing together policymakers from around the world to hopefully make some real progress on tackling the climate crisis. And obviously, large corporations have a big role to play there themselves. And while this episode is largely focused on US-related ESG risks, Owen, there has been a rather significant development in the UK in the last couple of weeks regarding climate disclosures. Yes, there has. So um, ever-evolving topic, the UK government just announced that they're bringing in mandatory climate disclosure rules for the, the UK largest public companies, banks, insurers, as well as private companies with more than 500 employees and 500 million in turnover. So, so topical. And as we'll hear in, in, in the following episode in the US context, those disclosures can produce challenges or potential problems down the line in the future. So it's important companies get those disclosures right and importantly, get them accurate, I imagine, as well. So obviously, though, Owen, as as we are about to hear, ESG is not restricted to just environmental issues. And I imagine just a couple of years ago, the acronym ESG wasn't popping up greatly on your radar regarding DNO risks. No, it wasn't. Uh, in terms of DNO, you know, when I first started in DNO ten years ago, it wasn't cropping up a lot. Now it's front and center, as we've just we've just discussed. People see the the critical importance of it, and it's top of the bill in terms of potential emerging risks uh, within the DNO. Sphere. So who do we have on the podcast today bringing us up to date on those risks emanating from ESG and what can be done to mitigate them? So our guests are from the law firm Norton Rose Fulbright. Um, they're all based in the US. We've got Rachel Ruth. Rachel is a commercial litigation advisor who advises exploration and production, oil field services, pipeline and petrochemical companies on litigation risks related to ESG, particularly with regard to environmental sustainability and human rights. She also helps clients with analysing litigation risks and examining risk mitigation options and drafting corporate statements on ESG. Then we've got Julie Firestone. Julie is a litigator as well, but within the financial services area. She defends entities and directors and officers in class actions and other litigation as well as regulatory matters. She focuses more on and advises companies on diversity, equity and inclusion efforts, particularly with regard to ESG disclosures. And finally, we've got Neil Lane. Neil is a litigation partner as well, and he advises DNO insurers with respect to the risks facing their policyholders. Great. So let's get into it then. And we begin with Neil explaining briefly what ESG means and why it is relevant to directors and officers. Well, Owen, ESG is an acronym, as everybody knows, for environmental, social, and governance. But the term is used to describe a shifting bundle of corporate policies on things like climate, sustainability, diversity and inclusion, social justice, and even executive compensation. Now, these are issues, most of them, that weren't always considered to implicate management and board core duties to maximize shareholder value. But there's a consensus now that high ESG performance can create better access to things like capital, talent, and business opportunities. So management and directors increasingly need to pay attention to ESG issues. 
We're going to come on to uh, risk mitigation regarding these issues um, later on. But before we do that, we're going to do a bit of horizon scanning. Rachel, I'm going to come to you first, if I may. Let's start with with climate risks. What would be your top three climate-related risks facing directors and officers and companies today? Well, as a litigator, I look at everything from a litigation perspective. So one of the risks I want to address is greenwashing. Greenwashing is an allegation that a company has presented itself or its products as being more sustainable or environmentally friendly than they really are. And these cases are on the rise. It used to be that there were climate change lawsuits brought by cities, counties, and states that focused on companies' emissions and trying to hold companies liable for those emissions and an alleged contribution to climate change. But those cases have really shifted and have gone more of a consumer protection route where the plaintiffs are focusing on allegations that the companies have greenwashed and they're trying to get damages under consumer protection statutes for alleged misleading statements. So to give some examples of greenwashing, there's a case in California where plaintiffs are alleging that some companies have put plastic resin codes on their packaging, allegedly with the knowledge that consumers would see those codes and think that that symbol meant that the plastics were recyclable when the plaintiffs alleged that those products really weren't going to be recycled in all likelihood. But it's also come into the climate change world, uh, not just plastics or typical consumer products. And plaintiffs have alleged that oil and gas companies have been misleading the public about climate change or about how sustainable the company's products are. And they're focusing not just on the truthfulness of the particular statements. It's, It's not always that the plaintiff is saying, you said X and X was false. The allegation is more that that companies may have made statements that, while true in a vacuum, in the greater context, are misleading. The, the, the statements don't present the full picture of the company's actions. So plaintiffs are alleging that those statements are misleading to the public and, and bringing lawsuits as a result. One thing I find really interesting is that these newer lawsuits on greenwashing have focused to some extent on the imagery that advertisements use. So if a, if a product is advertised and the color green is used a lot, or if there are scenes of nature in the background, the plaintiffs allege that that is subtle greenwashing to try and convince the public on a, a subtle level that the products are green products. So that's something to watch out for because plaintiffs are thinking that they can succeed more on these claims than the the more direct emissions-based claims. In terms of how to mitigate those risks from greenwashing-type cases, of course, it's important to ensure the accuracy of statements that companies make. But I think it's also important to take a step back and look at the big picture of how the company is representing itself. It's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't because companies are getting more pressure to to make themselves greener and to be more sustainable. And as they do that, they want to advertise that. So the problem there is that in advertising these new sustainable initiatives they have, they may put themselves at risk for greenwashing type claims. So it's important for the company when talking about these new initiatives that they take a step back and look at their overall public image and see, is that accurate? Does it pass the smell test? Are we presenting ourselves as we really are? And another suggestion I would have for mitigating risk from that is looking at 
who the company associates with. So plaintiffs are trying to put companies on the hook for the actions of, for example, trade associations that the companies fund. So companies need to look at who they're giving money to, what organizations, and whether those organizations are truly aligned with the company's goals. Because it may be that plaintiffs will come around and try to put the company on the hook for the actions, the advertisements of the trade associations or other organizations, and not just what the company itself is doing. So greenwashing and being thoughtful about which other external entities the company associates with, what else is on the horizon? Another issue that I think is on the horizon that that we're already seeing is shareholder activism. And there are two competing ideas at play here for how shareholders can affect change. Shareholders are starting to think about how their money is influencing the greater good, how in the context of climate change, the environment, how their money is being used to either help or hurt the environment. So one school of thought is that investors should pull their money out of companies that are not sustainable or environmentally friendly from the investor's perspective. The other school of thought is that shareholders can do the most good by using their money to do good and by keeping their money in companies that maybe aren't as environmentally sustainable as they would like right now, but that maybe the investors can lead change in that company using their shareholder rights and using their votes. So one example of this is engine number one. It's an activist hedge fund that was able to replace three directors on Exxon's board. That's an example of of shareholder activism. Another example uh, in the context of plastics is an organization called As You Sow. And they have submitted shareholder proposals, and some of these have been successful. But they're trying to require companies to report, plastics companies, to report plastic pellets bills. Those are called nurdles. Nurdles are little tiny plastic pellets that can get into waterways. And As You Sow has had some success in getting plastics companies to report those pellet spills. So there are various ways that that investors can affect change, and they're, they're trying to do that. So how can you mitigate that risk? Well, I think one important thing to do is to listen to shareholders and to do the horizon scanning to see what shareholders care about and what they want the company to care about. To some extent, the shareholder activism may be pure activism. It may be purely trying to make the world a better place. But in many cases, it's based on a belief that changing the way a company operates and making it more environmentally sustainable is also good for the bottom line and will also help the finances of the company. So engine number one, for example, spent $12.5 million on replacing three members of Exxon's board. They budgeted $30 million. It didn't cost as much as they expected. But that hedge fund took that bet, believing that they could actually make their investment worth more money if they took these initial steps to change the Exxon leadership. And the reason engine number one really succeeded was they were able to convince other major large institutional investors to get behind them. So it's really important for companies to listen to their their investors, especially the big institutional investors, and see what they care about and make sure that they're listening, they're, they're adopting their strategy to address those concerns, all with an idea to what is best for the company, keeping in mind that sometimes what's best for the company could also be what's best for the environment. The third issue I'd bring up is disclosures. Climate-related disclosures have become a pretty hot topic, and we're going to see a lot of movement 
coming up pretty soon. This summer, the G7 came out in support of mandating climate-related financial disclosures in line with TCFD, which is the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. The G7, for those who don't know, is Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, UK, and the US. So those are big countries coming out in support of making climate-related financial disclosures. And several countries have announced that they plan to require those disclosures, for example, UK and New Zealand. New Zealand's disclosure requirements are going to be that companies either have to comply or explain why they're not complying. So every, every country may do this a little differently, but we are going to see increased requirements that companies disclose what their financial risks are related to climate change. So that, that takes a lot of work from the company's end to make these disclosures because once they make the disclosures, they need to make sure that they're accurate. This, this kind of is, is like the greenwashing issue. Companies have to be really careful that when they, when they make these disclosures, they're accurate, they're accurately describing the processes they have to ensure that they're meeting their ESG goals and they need to be clear about what plans are future plans versus what the company is actually doing now. Because the company needs to make sure that they're not misrepresenting where they are in ESG now when they're talking about what their goals are. And I think companies need to start preparing now and thinking about what disclosure requirements are likely to come, what employees need to be involved in getting information together about those disclosures, what that process should look like at the company and what processes they're going to take to update those disclosures, to audit those disclosures, to make sure that they're being accurate and, of course, not misleading when you look at the big picture, not just line by line. So the prep work now can help a company from engaging in a race to the finish line once these mandatory rules actually start rolling out. A little prep in advance will be helpful. Great. And I think that's where litigators come in, right? Because you see often uh, litigators coming in after or maybe after the negative event or after the, the claim's been filed. And, and with your perspective that you bring as a litigator, you can be involved now thinking about how how do you deal with these issues appropriately in your disclosures now so that you kind of save yourself a problem in the future, perhaps? Yeah, I agree with that. And we've been helping some of our clients look at their corporate sustainability reports or ESG reports and do the analysis of whether those statements are accurate, whether they're misleading, and helping them see that from a litigator's viewpoint. Okay. Thank you, Rachel. So we will move on. Julie, the ESG agenda and discussion is often centered more around climate issues, but we also know there's the societal governance aspect. And, and within that, you have diversity and inclusion, which is obviously an extremely important topic. What are the top three diversity and inclusion related risks facing companies and directors right now? When it comes to the social aspect of ESG, diversity, equity, and, and inclusion is of increasing importance both to investors and regulators. So for the three risks, I would call them cultural risks, disclosure risks, and regulatory risks. And I think those all come under the umbrella of what do you do and what do you say? Specifically, what do you say about what you do? So the Activision Blizzard timeline shows the perfect storm of these risks in action. So June 11, 2021, Activision Blizzard touts its first ever ESG report, where the company reported that they had a culture of respect and inclusion. A month later, July 20, 2021, 
the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing files a lawsuit against Activision Blizzard in Los Angeles Superior Court with salacious allegations asserting that management of Activision Blizzard allowed and at times encouraged a frat boy culture, including rampant sexual misconduct towards female employees, and that the company's hiring and employment practices were discriminatory against women. The next day, the day the lawsuit becomes public, Activision Blizzard responds with a public statement in which they describe the suit as irresponsible and the allegations as, quote, distorted and false. And that public statement does not go over well. Two weeks later, August 3rd, 2021, Blizzard president Jay Allen Brock is is out. He's one of the several executives named directly in the complaint. He announces he's leaving. That same day, the company, its CEO, and its current and former CFO are named in a shareholder class action in California federal court. And then just this past week in September 2021, it's revealed that the SEC has also opened an investigation of the matter. So you have, in a few months, you have an ESG report where the company touts its uh, diversity and equity and inclusion perspective, and it completely unravels from there. So that, that one story just tells it perfectly of the three risks for DEI. You've got cultural risks. What you do, do you have a culture of respect and inclusion and non-discrimination? And then you have the disclosure risks. What do you say about your culture? What do you say about your metrics? Are they accurate? Are you disclosing problems? And then you've got the litigation risks that come right in with those disclosure risks. If they're not accurate, if there's an allegation that you're hiding something, specifically something negative, you've got the risks of lawsuits and then the regulatory risks. The SEC has followed right on the heels of that shareholder lawsuit with a investigation of its own. I find that one so interesting because of the the proximity of the ESG statement to, and it was so quick afterwards that the some of the litigation or the regulatory um, investigations began. And it just makes me wonder, was was there no communications whatsoever prior to this first ESG report coming out? Or was it perhaps the case, and I'm totally guessing here, that the, an issue became apparent and then there was a rush to think we need to put something out on this? I don't know. Good question. And I think discovery is going to be very interesting because the allegations are that there were a lot of complaints and that these complaints were enough for the company to know mm-hmm. that they had a problem and that they were failing to disclose that problem to investors. Those are the allegations. And the SEC has now issued subpoenas to current and former directors. So I'm sure this, the SEC has exactly the question you have. What did the company know and when did they know it? Right. Another regulatory risk are the increasing disclosure requirements that both the SEC and NASDAQ are propounding. So last year, in November 2021, the SEC implemented new human capital disclosure rules. And in certain SEC filings, a public company is now required to disclose the number of employees and a description of its human capital resources if it's material to the business. The SEC has also said that they're going to increase their ESG disclosure rules. So that is something that's coming on the horizon. Then just last month, the SEC approved new NASDAQ board diversity rules. So there are two key components. Companies on the NASDAQ are required to annually disclose statistical information about their board's voluntary self-identified gender and racial characteristics. The second part is that in 2023 and 2025, the boards are going to be required to have two diverse board members, one by 2023 and the second by 2025, or they're going to have to disclose 
why they can't comply or are not complying with that requirement. And just the possibility of not being able to fulfill that requirement and have to explain why is fraught with peril. Thank you, Julie. So going back to you, Neil, we've touched on some risk mitigation already, but what should risk managers, boards, internal counsel, whoever it is at the company, how should they be responding and what what should they really be doing to deal with these issues and ultimately mitigate against the risk of, as Julie's just describing, an adverse event occurring and then ultimately follow on litigation and regulatory enforcement action? Well, Owen, ultimately... Handling ESG risks, being prepared for them and addressing them rests with the board of directors. And then it's from there uh, down through management to manage them. But ESG risks, they're non-traditional risks and they can manifest in non-traditional ways. The circumstances that you've heard Rachel and Julie describe are examples. Those are not the traditional DNO concerns that you've heard in, in years past. So really the best practice is for management and particularly risk managers to conduct an ESG materiality assessment. And it it can take a lot of different forms, but particularly management and the risk manager need to think about and identify what are the ESG factors that have the biggest potential impacts on the enterprise. For instance, if you're an energy company, it's going to probably be climate ESG risk factors that are going to be very high on your list. If you're a retailer, it may be diversity inclusion that are going to be more important. But again, there too, climate and sustainability uh, will be issues for a retailer. So that's one question. What are the factors that have the biggest impact on the enterprise? Secondly, what are the long-term effects of developments? In other words, we've been talking about horizon scanning risks. Well, boards and management need to be scanning the horizon too. What are the changes in regulations and industry norms and business risks that may occur? And how will they impact from an ESG perspective, the company? And wherever possible, use data, use benchmarks to evaluate. It's not enough to just have an impressionistic description. You need to say, how are we doing in terms of our carbon footprint? How are we doing in terms of our diversity and inclusion? And actually have numbers that bear out your analysis. The bottom line, and I think both Rachel and Julie have pointed out examples, the bottom line is that companies can't treat ESG issues solely as a public relations challenge. If they talk the talk, if they adopt a code of conduct for their company, if they say they're going to try and be responsible with respect to climate and sustainability, they have to walk the walk because perceived hypocrisy makes a company a delicious target for regulators, for plaintiff's lawyers. There is no better story that a plaintiff's lawyer or regulator likes to tell than they have knocked down a hypocrite who has misrepresented what they're doing with respect to these ESG issues. So if you talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. <laughs> well, yeah. One of the things I, I often, I was thinking about this yesterday, and I don't remember anyone talking about this before, but you, I've heard it so much uh, recently is people seeing the cor- and, and, and looking into and understanding the correlation between doing these things and do, and having, having a plan and implementing it properly and financial performance of the company. And it feels like that's, that's going to drop with, with, um, with loads of people and I think it's for me that's one of the most powerful things if you want if you want the financial performance of the company if you want it to perform then then you've got to address these issues and it's and it's not one size fits all either I would even say Owen for the first decades when securities laws and securities regulations were in effect for companies really a, the, the board's concern was if we're making widgets 
How can we get the best return? How can we get the most for our shareholders? And if it involved trampling on the climate and excluding people from power, if it made you more dollars, well, that was acceptable. And now we've come to a place where we realize that that's not acceptable, that there are costs. And even just as importantly, there are great opportunities for businesses to enhance their bottom line, to open up markets, to get better talent, better creative and better executives by really adopting responsible corporate policies with respect to ESG issues. Right. We keep talking in terms of future risks and so forth, mm-hmm. but, but we've seen, you know, multiple tower limits losses that, you know, have arisen from this kind of claiming. I mean, the, in the Signet case, there was, you know, a corporate code of conduct and the judge held the company to it. The judge said, you had this code of conduct. You didn't follow it. That's material in terms of your disclosures to the public. And what they hadn't disclosed was far from following their code of conduct. And living up to their code of conduct, the company had allegedly engaged in just rampant sexual harassment and all sorts of behavior that were reprehensible. And as a result, that disconnect resulted in a major loss, uh, major payments by the DNO insurers and the company itself. It was it's a loss that was more than the limits of their DNO policies. And that's a worst case scenario for risk manager. Well, thank you to Neil, Rachel and Julie, who I thought really brought the ESG topic to life with some very instructive real world examples. Also, from my perspective, it was great to get that US perspective and context on this because it's generally been my impression and again, maybe my ignorant impression, but that the UK and Europe have been further ahead on this, but it is obvious from what the team was saying that they, this is absolutely coming down the track in respects of regulators and stock markets looking for more disclosures and the issues regarding the ESG in the United States are obviously already there today, Owen. Absolutely. And you know, the key, I'll run through some of the key takeaways for me in this area, having having spoken to, to the team from Norton Rose. Firstly, because of the rapid change in this area there's so much scope i think for getting it wrong or, or just not quite getting it right and that makes it a ripe area for the plaintiff's bar uh, greenwashing being an especially interesting one as i think this is a risk even when even when the actions are well intentioned secondly you know, there's been a lot of discussion around this, that there's an increasing focus on these issues from regulators and regulatory investigations and the cost of defending those investigations is a traditional DNO risk that we're, we are very familiar with. And we talked about the US and the SEC. In the UK, one of the most aggressive, reg- well, aggressive, reg- aggressive regulatory bodies there is, the CMA, they've come out and, uh, with a green claims code effectively saying, you know, here's a code to help you comply with the law on how you communicate green credentials. And you know, you better be careful because we're on standby and ready to take action against offending firms, you know, beginning in beginning in 2022. So regulatory focus. Thirdly, success in these areas can increase res- success with respect to the bottom line and the overall success of a company. So this was powerful for me because I think even for the skeptics out there, even the people who don't see the importance of these issues um, from a kind of humanitarian <laughs> point of view, surely that's that's got to be a strong influence uh, um, in convincing them too. So, and finally, I think one thing that come out of it for me was just about empathy. So listen to your shareholders, listen to your other stakeholders, listen to your employees and above all you better make sure you're doing what you say you do (laughs) otherwise you get in trouble basically yeah 
Yeah, no, absolutely. That was that was really interesting the way the way that they emphasised that regarding you know you got to uh, you got to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Well, well, next up then on our journey through the world of DNO risks and how to mitigate them, we'll be returning to the UK to discuss derivative actions and some of the trends in that area. The best way to make sure that and future episodes of the Rising Edge DNO podcast are downloaded straight to your device is to subscribe on any podcast app. We're on all the big ones: Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Cast. Box, Amazon Music, and the smaller ones as well. So do make sure you do that. But Owen, in the meantime, stay well and see you soon. Thanks, Richard. See you next time.